This is the Off Duty On Duty Podcast, episode number 34. I'm your host, Brian Eastridge, and welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network, the Off Duty On Duty Podcast. We take topics relevant to today's gun owners and we tackle them from the perspective of everyday concealed carriers and the perspective of everyday on duty law enforcement officers, giving you both angles of discussion. Today, I'm joined by my father, Gary Eastridge, and we're going to talk about the Oklahoma City bombing, as today is on the 26th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah building. First, let's talk sponsors. Our title sponsor for the podcast is now Excess Sights. Check them out at excesssights.com. Get sights for your pistol, rifle, shotgun, scope ring, scope mounts. The whole gamut is there. Thank you to Excess Sights for sponsoring the podcast. Also, ccwsafe.com. The best legal service membership for concealed carriers and off-duty law enforcement officers. The most comprehensive coverage by the most experienced team. CCW Safe and the Off-Duty Pod, Off-Duty, On-Duty Podcasts have teamed up to get you 10% off of your annual membership. Go to ccwsafe.com and enter code OFFDUTY10 at checkout for 10% off your membership. Let's bring in our guest. All right, welcome to the podcast again. Like I have to tell you, like you're a special guest or something. Uh, <laughs> anyway, the last time we talked aftermath of an officer-involved shooting and uh, – you gave us some insight on that today. It was requested that on the 26th anniversary of the Alfred P. Murrah building bombing 419 of 95, you know, the producers wanted uh, some inside content and you volunteered. So I appreciate that. One of the first things I solicited some people for questions. One of the first things that came up was what were you doing that day? Like, where were you assigned? What were you doing? I was assigned to the homicide unit at the time. And my uh, my partner Randy Scott and I had just actually solved a murder. Oh wow! So we were uh, we had got up that morning and we're going to try to get to the courthouse real early to get some warrants signed, get some arrest warrants, um, possibly search warrant signed. Knowing the courthouse, we knew none of the judges would be oh. in until about nine or nine thirty. <laughs> so. Uh, since we'd been kind of working around the clock, we uh, we decided to go uh, get a haircut. I had a I had a good friend that had a barber shop, and she agreed to meet us over there early. And is that Leela? Leela, Miss Leela. <laughs> we were actually there at the time of the blast. Oh wow! So how far away from downtown was that? Uh, Eighty nine South Walker. Uh, I'd have to do the math on it, but it's About probably four five. Miles. Yeah, four and a half, five miles due south of the uh, incident location of the okay. building. Did you know what had happened when you were there? No, uh, I actually, uh, you know, typical. I didn't. I didn't ever carry any cash on me, so I was going to run through the ATM and get some money. So I dropped my partner off. Uh, pulled out onto Walker northbound and saw the mushroom cloud. Oh, wow. Uh, over downtown. And it, I mean, it was pretty apparent that something significant had occurred. So, uh, we generally didn't run our police radio. We didn't keep our police radio on in our detective cruiser unless we were, uh, Do trying to communicate or, uh, you know, needing a scout car or something like that. Needing some handcuffs. Yeah, That's so, an inside joke. So, uh, yeah. That occurred more than once. And uh, 
I reached over and flipped the police radio on and the initial reports over the radio uh, indicated that it was possibly a gas explosion or something like that. But it became pretty clear that the scope of the event was massive okay. uh, just from the response because you had people, if you've ever listened to the police radio during a, a major incident. incident like that, uh, you had people reporting, hey, I've got six down here, two critical, two DOA, so on and so forth. Had you worked a mass incident before? And the reason I ask is, you know, fast forward a few years, 99, we had the mass casualty incident, with which I was in the Army at the time. You were back here uh, of the May 3rd tornado. And then fast forward a few years after that, I'm in a police car in the training program and I'm working a mass casualty incident with the May 8th tornado of, uh, 2003. So was there anything similar or, I mean, granted, nothing's going to meet the scope of that, but had, had you ever worked a mass casualty type incident like that? Nothing, nothing anywhere close to either of those two events, both of those events, because of my assignment in the homicide unit, we were requested to go assist the, uh, medical examiner's unit and, and got kind of temporary assigned uh, to assist with the ME operations. But prior to that, I'd been on some, uh, you know, incidents with multiple victims, mm-hmm. two, three, four victims, something like that, uh, but nothing uh, that compared to the, uh, to the number of victims added to the widespread destruction because, okay. you know, I was living downtown at the, at the time, about... About 30 feet from here. Yeah, not far from this very location. So when you say ME, some of the, uh, you know, we get into kind of regionally specific jargon. ME being, if you were on the West Coast, that's the coroner's office. Yeah, medical, medical examiner, coroner, uh, however your, uh, you know, jurisdiction is set up. Okay. 902 happens, you realize something's gone sideways and uh randy who we both know uh i'm assuming y'all y'all go warp six to downtown yeah we uh i i turned around immediately uh pulled up got him said i don't know what's going on but it's big uh we loaded up headed towards the scene uh and by the time we were able to make it into downtown they already had the uh a, a loose perimeter set up and, okay. and were restricting traffic because they were trying to get ambulances and first responders in there. So I diverted over to the uh, police headquarters. About the time we got to police headquarters, they evacuated police headquarters because oh, wow. by that time they had a pretty good understanding that it was probably a device of some type. Okay. Um, and they, they assumed that the police uh, headquarters could be a secondary target. So they were evacuating uh, the the office when I got there. I remember seeing pictures of people like assembled by headquarters. What did the police department do at that time? I had heard stories like they were like, well, let's all form, make a formation and we're going to march over. And then there was already people on scene that were patrolmen and, and it was kind of a, a lot of chaos right there at the beginning. What happened when you got downtown? 
I can only experience, uh, speak to what I personally experienced and personally did. I know there was, you know, everybody uh, was responding in one at one level or another. We formed up with the, the we being the homicide unit and walked to the Murrah building. Okay, uh, it's uh, you know it was four or five blocks away. Uh, I still remember as we we're getting within a couple blocks. You could see buildings with with collapsed roofs. Anything with glass within a two or yeah. three block area was was shattered and out. And then about the time we got there, they made the announcement of a secondary advi- uh, device. I remember seeing that when I was let's see, I was in I was a freshman in high school, and them evacuating the building a second time, uh, and seeing our our buddy uh, Luke mm-hmm. and them talking to him on the radio as everybody was clearing around and you know he was on the ninth floor and if you visit the memorial museum you can see the handwritten note that he let or billboard that he made that said atf trap ninth floor and he's a mutual friend and great dude but so that's kind of the timeline there homicide so you're talking investigations assaults homicide robbery what kind of every like what kind of attire were these were, were the other investigators in? Were you in suits? Were you well, in? Yeah, it depended on your assignment. Most right. most of our uh, investigative units, you're going to wear either business casual or business attire. Um, I don't remember specifically. We had been out most of the night before working on the homicide. Yeah. So um, I believe I was dressed in business attire because I remember at some point in the first 24 hours, because we worked pretty well straight through for the first 24. Wow. Uh, I remember peeling off. We had a little bit of downtime and I came back over here mm-hmm. to my residence, changed into some jeans and some work boots, and then uh, rejoined the, the group back at the site. Seeing pictures of this, of uh, the scene, there were a lot of what today we dub first responders that were investigations personnel and stuff like that, that were not in your utilitarian type uniform but we're still there doing digging through rubble in in a business suit with dress shoes on and that always kind of struck me like wow these dudes didn't go hold on i gotta i gotta go change clothes you said 24 hours you worked straight through and jacob the uh the president of uh concealedcarry.com came here to uh the condo i live in the same complex you did the listeners probably know that now, but I live in the same complex and he, he had asked me, he goes, wow. Like he was right. He, you know, you speaking about you, you lived right here. You know, were you worried about maybe this place wasn't going to be structurally okay. And maybe you weren't going to be able to go home or what was that? Yeah, absolutely. That, you know, your initial, once you you kind of go on autopilot anytime there's a, a significant incident like this. Yeah. And once we had done what we were phase- physically able to do initially, then it, it started sinking into me that, hell, I don't even know if I've got a place to live anymore. I don't know if my, my, uh, my condo's intact. I don't know if, hell, I had a lot of friends that worked in the building. Yeah. Uh, and then you're starting to process that, hey, uh, my good friend Blake Webster, you, yeah. our mutual friend, longtime Oklahoma City officer, his mother worked in the building at the time. 
Yeah. So I immediately, you know, your your phone's going off, and I'm trying to get a hold of him to see if he's able to make contact with his mother. And then family members are calling me because I'd yeah. been in and out of that building a few hundred times on mm-hmm. cases. People are starting to call, say, hey, are you all right? And the, the cellular network here just vapor locked at a point to where you couldn't yeah. get through. Yeah, and let's talk about that. We didn't have iPhones. It seems like they were the uh, cellular one, the big almost brick phones at the time that you actually had numbers and a keypad you had yeah. to dial. Yeah. When I was in my freshman year of school there, I remember them saying, you know, does anybody know anybody that works or anybody got parents that work in the Murrah building? And I walked over to a teacher and I said, well, you know, my dad's a cop and he's in and out of there all the time. And they said, well, go call him. And I said, I'm going to bet he's busy. And I remember they said, well, you're going to try. I can't remember the number, but I dialed it and it was immediately the busy signal. And I thought, okay. And then. For some reason, Kyle got a hold of me. I can't remember how that was. And he said, hey, we're all all right. I, I hesitate to say he said everything was okay, but he said something like everything's is with us is okay in the aunt, uncle, dad. We're, we're, all, we're all okay in, you know, in regards to the whole landscape of things that were going on. Nobody was injured. Nobody was, uh, you know whatever. And I remember getting that phone call. And then the next one, I got a hold of you that evening. And the first thing you said is, I don't know when I'm going to be home. And I don't know if my home is even okay right now. Uh, Cause we're four and a half, five blocks from the, the site. Tell me two things. This was a question that came up. Two things that nobody would know, because of course we get uh, snippets through news media outlets, um, you know, reporting, special reporting, the anniversaries, there's, there's details and, and the general public can get on Wikipedia and kind of get an idea of the general framework. Tell me two things that maybe stand out that people don't know something that would be not common. That's that somebody wouldn't know about that incident. It could be anything. Mm, That's uh. The things that struck me were, were just the uh, massiveness of the scale of the damage for blocks and blocks uh, in multiple directions. Um, you know, as far as what most people wouldn't know, uh, you know, this is one, this event's probably been cataloged as mm-hmm. as much as any that's ever occurred in the United States. But um, for me, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the condition of the victims that we recovered was, was uh, not what I expected. Uh, we had what I expected was devastation of the human body and we had some of that but we also had victims uh i remember a couple a couple um, people i had worked with at dea secret service and so on that that as we worked them brought them out they they looked like they'd laid down gone to sleep um and and that struck me i think uh, quite a bit yeah and i don't i don't want to like dig too much into that side of the whole uh incident you know i mean devastation and chaos it it that stuff that uh 
I don't think anybody really likes to talk about because mm. it's just, I mean, it's stuff we don't want to remember. Overall, it was just surreal. It was so overwhelming that uh, when you looked at the uh, looked at the tasks in front of you, you had no idea what you could actually do. And it, and I was I was very amazed at how quick there was some semblance of order yeah. back at the site. And once the FEMA teams rolled in, what they were able to do in relatively short order. What uh, what do you attribute the on the the police department response side? What do you attribute that to? Just from talking to partners of mine that you know colleagues that we've both worked with over the years, uh, which you know we span two generations of law enforcement now, and I, there was overlap with people that uh, I worked with that were on scene really quickly. You mentioned Blake. I mean, he was one of my he was one of my bosses for a couple of years. You know and what do you attribute that order coming together so rapidly from? Because uh, you can't really train for this. Yeah, familiarity. You're, you you work with a team. Uh, you Even though we all have different assignments, and uh, Oklahoma City is not a super large agency, you know, the mm-hmm. 1,000, 1,100 men, women, uh, but it's big enough that you have diverse experience and – Pretty quickly, you know, you had the traffic enforcement people who mm-hmm. who established the the outer perimeter, and then as the initial response calmed down, I say calmed down. That's probably not the right term. As it became somewhat organized, yeah. Then you had like the uh, CIT teams uh, uh, who would form a perimeter, and then they got a fence up pretty quick and then very rapidly it was assignments just like you would normally get in law enforcement yeah Uh, like i said i I, my myself my partner and all the homicide unit uh with the assistance of the robbery unit unit and um uh the assault unit we took over the operation of of the on-site medical examiner which was yeah. once a once a victim was recovered, helping uh, get a preliminary uh, identification on that person, cataloging who they were, how they were dressed, if if you knew who they were. If you FEMA had a team called DMORT, Disaster Mortician, uh-huh. and we worked very closely with them. We would do interviews of survivors, which is something I did during the interim. There was the initial response, and then there was trying to figure out what needs to be done. Uh, myself and Ron Mitchell went up to uh, the office of the CEO of Southwest Bell uh, and checked with him about getting uh, surveillance. Ron was real quick to point out that how there's surveillance cameras in all directions, and we were able to actually uh, recover some of the uh, – uh, raw surveillance video or security video Yeah, uh, that some of it was helpful. Well, then they made assignments for us to go interview uh, some survivors. Are you talking survivors from in the building? Yes. Or are you ta- okay. Several people, you know, the mutual acquaintances and friends of ours that were uh, just happened to not be there at that time. And that's kind of come up 
you and I know, understand how law enforcement works. It's not an office job, nine to five. Uh, and there's been this narrative pushed by people about, well, certain people, certain factions knew and they, they, and I'm like, look, dude, if you're at the courthouse getting a warrant signed, you're not going to be in your office. Okay. Yeah. And some of those, so I never knew you, you actually interviewed people that were in yeah. the building at the time. So that's a good distinction yeah. to make. Yeah. The, uh, one, and I still remember we were sent over to the Oklahoma blood Institute. Okay. Uh, that's where they were bringing people. Of course you had, you had a lot of people there donating blood, uh, but they'd also use that as a rally point for survivors. And, and I interviewed several people who were in the building, including one man that I still to this day, his interview sticks with me uh he was very distinguished i believe he worked for either hud or secret service i mean uh social security okay uh and after i'd got through some preliminary questions uh, and asked him what had happened he said you know that after the, the explosion he went to check on his wife who worked for another federal agency okay uh and he said uh she was gone and I said, well, she had left. And he goes, no, she's gone. And I said, uh, what do you mean? And he said, oh, I went to where her office and everything was, and it is physically no longer there. Oh, wow. And then it, you know, I realized that he was telling me that he knew his wife had not survived. When you were doing those interviews, was that, was part of that to get accountability of people? Yeah, we were, nobody really knew, you know, you had uh, a nine floor building uh, with multiple agencies. Um, So we were trying to uh, narrow down how many victims we had, how many were missing, that sort of thing. And that's one of the things that this FEMA DMORT team was, was amazing with what they did by the second, third, fourth day of the recovery effort, which lasted 12 days, if I recall yeah. correctly, uh, we would, when a, when a victim would be found and we would give them the preliminary information, they would say, well, that's probably this person. They were last seen on this floor talking to this person. And it was just amazing how quickly they were able to collate that information and, uh, you know, turn it into actionable. So- yeah, so it was kind of like uh, actionable intelligence and putting a almost like putting a puzzle together. Absolutely, um, and yeah. I've I've seen that you know, the closest thing I've worked is you know May eighth and then uh, May twentieth tornado that took out South Oklahoma City. Yeah, was how quickly we would establish. Uh, they didn't necessarily call it survivor, but it was more like an accountability type deal, and how quickly they were able to piece together these are people that we have unaccounted for. And, uh, it's amazing how that happens in just a matter of hours. And, and I wondered fast forward to, you know, 2013 versus 1995, uh, a lot of the lessons learned from the people I've talked to in emergency management roles and all that, a lot of the protocols for emergency management were developed at that incident. Yeah. which I never knew that before, you know, a lot of the FEMA protocols for how to get accountability of people were developed on like April 20th of 95 when they, and then after, uh, after the incident and all that, when they reviewed critical incident management, 
a lot of that was developed. The model for nine 11 was developed on, you know, on the April 19th incident. So, yeah, uh, and it, it, it was really for being a part of it. Sometimes when you're, you've got a, a role to play, it's hard to realize that you have a really a small role mm-hmm. and that's where, you know, typical of a large law enforcement, multi-agency law enforcement operation, there was some interagency, uh, not necessarily bickering, but it was, it wasn't real clear who was in charge. Of course, when the feds announced they were in charge, that rubbed a few people the wrong way. But ultimately, when you were able to step back and look how they all came to, together and brought order to what was chaos in just a relatively short few hours, it, it was nothing short of amazing to me. What other type standout things do you not necessarily related to victims or just chaos. Mm-hmm. What other things when you were there were, I, I don't want to say overwhelming, but what kind of things surprised you? Like, wow, I would have not expected this or that. Well, uh, number one was the community support, the community reaction. We immediately, okay. uh, you know, we're, we're down there as we said earlier in, in business attire, digging through rubble and, and uh, doing everybody doing what they could do. Well, somebody mentioned we need gloves, and somehow yeah. or another that got to the PIO who made an announcement. And next thing we knew, there were caravans of citizens who had gone to Walmart uh, hmm. anywhere and, and bought cases of gloves and brought down to us. By about the third day, there was a um, – almost like a general store set up under one of the buildings had a large covered um, point for drive through. And they set up because we, you know, typical April in Oklahoma, we had cold, we had hot, we had rain. They had that, that, um, that supply area set up. You could take a break, go up there, get boots, uh, rain gear, gloves, anything you needed. And then the second thing was every restaurant in Oklahoma City lined up to bring food. It, it, it almost became problematic getting rid of it because there was so much that were brought to that was brought to the to the uh, I hate the term rescuers, but everyone working at the site. Yeah, uh, it was uh, it was just it was somewhat overwhelming. Had a real distinct memory of setting in your parents' den about how it was probably the day after, maybe maybe two days after. And uh, my grandmother, I remember watching because the news was on constant cycle. There was no sitcom. There was no rom-com going on the tv it was constant coverage from the national media probably the international media on to local media and there was like this call to action that came out and it was like hey these guys have been working 21 hours straight yeah i guess it was after the first day these guys have been working 21 hours straight and this news anchor said i just overheard one of the first responders which that term kind of got coined right then Mm -hmm. uh i just overheard one of the first responders say that 
they wished they had some fresh, some clean socks. And my grandmother going, we should go to Walmart and buy some socks right now. And my granddad, your dad saying, let's give it about 20 minutes here before. And it was within 20 minutes. I remember seeing like a foot locker truck or something show up. And then it got so, like you said, almost problematic that I remember the news media saying, Hey, there's an amusement park, uh, up around Memorial and I 35, 122nd and I 35, about, about six miles North of the, of the incident. They said, we're going to stage. If you have donations, send them here. And the police department, fire department and emergency services will come and collect them there because people were, there was a traffic jam driving to downtown to try to support the people on scene, uh, for the first probably 20 hours. It was just nonstop. Uh, Hey, you know, it's cold tonight. Grab, go get all the kids spare jackets and take them downtown. It was, it was, yeah, see, I was 50. Yeah, I was 15, 16 at the time. And it was pretty overwhelming just to see that, uh, that level of community support. And I don't know nine 11, New York. I wasn't, that would be like New York looking at us then. I don't know what it was like there, but that was pretty, uh, Pretty powerful, pretty overwhelming. We, you know, we worked a lot with uh, the uh, search and rescue teams from around the country, and I got to, uh, I met and worked with several guys from the New York teams, and they had had World Trade Center one, if you recall, ninety three in ninety three. So they they were amazed. Uh, we took our the Myriad Convention Center and set that up as bunkhouses, uh, you know, with cots yeah. and all the out of towners. And they said, you know, we could leave our our belongings there and not come back to find them stolen. They said that, uh, you know, when they were working on the rescue, that uh, people were selling bottles of water. If you're a rescuer, it's two dollars for a bottle of water. It's a dollar for a cup of coffee. Wow. Whereas around here, they were just amazed that uh, several of them said, you know, they left with the same dollar they had in their pocket when they arrived. Uh, and then beyond that, crime came to a virtual standstill for, for several days because I was still working after that initial response. Uh-huh. We were still spending uh, four hours in the office and eight to ten hours at the scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, you know, we still had our cases to work, you know, Oklahoma city average is back then we were probably around, oh, 70 to 90 homicides a year. Uh-huh. And we went for that entire two week period. And I believe there were, were two, uh, one or two. Yeah. Uh, homicides and, and like I say, crime, uh, uh, really slowed down which was good because 90 percent of our workforce was at that scene yeah i had uh i had a friend that was actually working it's no longer there but they had the federal reserve bank Mm -hmm. was just a few blocks and he was an employee there at the time i worked there yeah years ago yeah i know i know several cops that started out in uh started out in the workforce at the federal reserve you know and now it's uh now it's a privately owned facility, but I'll never forget one of the officers that he tells me, yeah, you know, I'm a teenager and we evacuate the federal reserve. And nobody locked the door. Yeah. And he goes, there are literally 
there were millions and millions of dollars just laying on carts in the federal reserve building. He said, we came back six days later and inventoried it. And every dime was still there. When we had the CCW safe summit two week or, you know, a week and a half ago, a couple of friends came in town, Hanny and DB and uh, Jacob Paulson and several other people. When they came, they said, well, how safe is the downtown area? And I said, well, uh, you know, the federal reserve, they left it open after the bombing and nobody even took a nickel. So I think you'll be all right. You know? And they were kind of like taken aback by that. Now, granted we have, you know, we have our street, our share of crime here, but, uh, that was another thing years later in hindsight, when they did after action reviews was seeing the call volume, even in high crime areas dropped almost nothing. Yeah. I mean, it was like, even the criminals said, well, the cops are busy. Let's take a break this weekend. Let's see thing related to the actual crime scene that you remember. That's kind of a banner moment. There's talk about the, the axle of the truck, anything like that, that you can, which is always really fascinating me. And it became a kind of a point of contention later uh, during the trial period, but a good friend of mine, uh, several of us, I saw the axles I went by. I, I have no experience in in post-blast reconstruction or anything, but uh, I remember seeing the axle uh, on, on Fifth Street in front of the Regency Apartments. Mike McPherson, a very good longtime friend of mine. Bomb tech, uh, long time. Bomb, bomb tech, tech and auto theft detective. Well, on that, on that particular day, Mike McPherson responded and, and – being an auto theft detective and a, and a bomb tech, he deduced pretty quickly that that axle couldn't have got there unless it was got part one. of the, it, it was a full block west of the scene. And for that, you know, you're talking about a rider rental truck, a heavy axle for it to travel that far, actually landed on a small vehicle with a, uh, had a, a young kid in it. Oh, wow. Luckily didn't hurt him too bad. He knew that it was most likely from the, uh, the V bed. So, uh, being an auto theft detective, he knew about confidential VIN. So he was able to retrieve the confidential VIN from that, get a registration. From that, it, all this information was being collated by the various agencies. So that information went to Ryder, who says that truck belongs to whatever rental agency up in uh, uh, or was last assigned to the 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 uh, rental agency in Kansas, which resulted in the uh, the John Doe. Uh, uh, composite drawings once that composite drawing was released unbeknownst to everybody on the ground uh, tim mcveigh had been stopped by charlie hanger of ohp up on i-35 and was being held on relatively minor charges one of the things that you do in large events in law enforcement a lot of times is you'll set up a almost like a mini task force and there were people answering the tip lines well a good friend of mine mark maholic from atf gets the tip that hey uh i was in the army with this guy and he had a little bit of way out there ideas concerning the government uh you might look at him mark runs an offline search 
that shows that he was arrested 90 minutes after the bombing, 90 minutes north of Oklahoma City. From that, in uh, you know a day or day and a half, uh, we had Tim McVeigh in custody. Yeah, I always wondered how that connection was made because I've I've talked to Mark Mahalik several times, but I never understood the connection of how he got the information and how he identified that so quickly. Because I met Charlie Hanger years ago, uh, you know, he was a retired o- uh, highway patrolman, and made a simple traffic stop on a guy with a gun and no driver's license and no tag. Old fashioned police work, yes. just as simple and and basic and uh and and they did an incredible job of it yeah mark told me years later he said that mcveigh was about 90 minutes from bonding out yeah before they just let it or on a or oral recognizance bond hey i'll show up to court just let me sign the papers he was actually as i the way i recall the story he was actually on the way to the courtroom for that exact uh for that reason yeah but uh you know initially once it was determined to be a bomb, of course, we didn't know if it was Middle Eastern. And that was, at that time, that was the initial assumption that it involved something Middle Eastern. And I can I can tell you, because I, I remember watching the news report on why they started driving almost a Middle Eastern narrative, mm-hmm. is because if you look at the Beirut bombing in 83, mm-hmm. there was a lot of similarities between mm-hmm. those two incidents. And it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a race thing. It wasn't anything like that. It was, Hey, you know, this, this closely mirrors this incident that happened at the Marine barracks in Beirut. And well, and you, you take that with, with information, raw data, you know, uh, the other thing, uh, I can't remember who it was that he was, uh, a guy I ran into years later. That was a, a federal agent assigned to that building. That was a former Marine that had been in Beirut when that incident had happened. And he said, you know, I immediately flashed back to, this is a vehicle born Mm -hmm. IED. And, uh, he said that the similarities were just so striking that he said, I, I had that feeling like, here we go again, another terrorist attack on, uh, on a U.S. entity, and it just happens to be a federal building. But but he was talking about the uh, the similarities in the the blast signature, and I, what I mean by that is just looking at the damage surrounding the building and the way that the building was damaged. That he said, "Man, I got I got flashbacks to '83." Yeah, and uh, and for most of us, you know, you're you're working off your your anger is building while you're you want somebody to blame you you want to you want to find the person responsible and and uh hold them responsible especially as we you know working through the daycare and working through the children and you every time you recover a child or or you see an injured child you your anger would flash but you didn't have anybody to be angry you didn't know how who or how to direct your anger you're talking about as a as a cop and a human being going this this really pisses as a me father off. yeah you, you're looking and you you it's it's impossible for me to this day to fathom as i watch things going on around the country around the world how people can intentionally hurt innocents and especially innocent children yeah and you know we lost 19 innocent children in that 
Yeah. Uh, of the 168 victims, 19 were, were, were babies. Yeah. Uh, and like I say, your anger. And I still remember there's, there were three or four extremely emotional minutes or moments at that scene. And I remember when they said they, they had the suspect in custody. That was tremendous. And then the second one was, you know, we'd all made a, uh, that was a real high moment. Mm-hmm. And then we had all made this commitment that we were going to get all the victims out and we were going to give families the, the closure, closure that, that it's kind of a, that's kind uh, of a cliche term. It is. Me. And it's, it's, it, it, there is no closure, but whatever sense of comfort that recovering their loved ones, you had that as your driving force every day. And I still remember, uh, I've, I've got the picture on my, my wall at home of us all gathered up the night. Uh, it was, a, I believe it was the 12th night and they had, uh, they made the announcement that we were pulling out. They were ceasing uh, recovery operations until they could implode the building, which there were tears and nobody wanted to leave. We didn't want to leave until every person was out of there. And I remember that just being an overwhelmingly down moment. It's nothing we could do to help those. And there was three three, uh, that we knew of were unaccounted for at that point. Yeah. The uh, one of which was my neighbor growing up, so that that yeah. kind of hit close to home. Yeah. Now the in in they also after implosion when they got to the point where they could recover those last three, they called the team from the medical examiner's office, and we all uh, uh, arrived back at the scene and physically recovered the last three. I was in Tulsa on my motorcycle, yeah. and I'm not sure how fast my harley would go but i i had it pretty well pegged out on the turner turnpike <laughs> to get back in time to participate in recovering the last uh and th- and that was uh i forget the exact time frame but about a month how soon after the incident did and i i only ask this because working tornado that's the only thing that i could even remotely compare it's working uh mass casualty incidents incidents with tornadoes how quickly did you go from, okay, this is a rescue effort to this is now a recovery effort? Like, what was that time frame? And I think there's some value in that, uh, especially, you know, here we are in 2021, and uh, I'm not trying to sound too cliche, but, you know, a lot of the armed citizenry, a lot of the, uh, you know, off-duty cop populace, we're starting to carry medical kits. We're starting to carry mm-hmm. self-rescue gear. How soon after the initial incident do you remember them going, this has gone from rescue to recovery? And the difference being we're rescuing people that are alive or we're recovering the, the deceased. Officially, my recollection was that it was 24 to 48 hours later. Unofficially, within about probably six to eight hours, everyone knew that there was no one else coming out alive. Uh, they had the one uh, uh, pretty incredible rescue where they did the uh, 
field amputation of the young lady caught, uh, trapped under a concrete slab in the basement. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, it it was pretty clear because, you know, I made it up to uh, uh, seventh or eighth floor initially, and it was pretty clear that if you remember the pictures of the building, the horseshoed out uh, part of the building that collapsed was primarily on the uh, east end of the building. The rest of the building was pretty accessible, and you could clear it pretty easy. What we weren't able to clear was the rubble pile where the floors had pancaked down. Mm-hmm. And then, like I say, it, it, that it, it became pretty apparent pretty quick that that, wasn't, that area was not survivable. Yeah. One of my partners on day shift was actually in the uh uh in the building when they called for hey there's possibly a second device which I've never gotten a clear answer on that. I kind of have some speculation and I've heard enough accounts of 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 why that happened, but he was actually with that victim when they called to evacuate the building and he he said, you know, I had a decision to make. I can leave this person that's trapped or I can try to help them. And then within, I I think it was within a couple of hours, they did a uh, kind of a hasty amputation with a a doctor uh, that with a pocket knife, a doctor that just happened to volunteer and be there and, uh, and were able to recover her from the, from the building. And he said that was, you know, you go through the, go through life and you have these like, I don't know what he called like defining moments. And he said, you know, you're looking at another human being in the eye in the eye and they go, you've got to leave. And he said, you know, I had a decision to make, do I stay here with this person or do I go for my own safety? And he said, that was a, you never expect to be faced with like face to face with that decision ever in a lifetime. And he goes, and I made it with a quickness. And he said, and then I think back years later and go, and that could have been it. That could yeah. have been that could have been they coming in to recover me. So, yeah, that uh, that moment when they made that announcement was the only time that I felt fear during the really? whole time. The only time during the Murrah Building incident that I feared for myself. You know, the rest crawling around on rubble and doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, you're just doing what you should do. Autopilot. You're on autopilot. I still remember I, I I had just arrived at the scene. Of course, we're still trying to figure out what happened. I ran into uh, Big Daryl. Uh, oh, yeah. A dear friend of mine, uh, ATF agent. Uh, and I said, hey, are all your guys all right? Luke's trapped on the ninth floor. And they had been in radio contact with him. He was okay, but he couldn't get out of the building. And it wasn't just a few minutes later that they made the announcement. And the announcement was everybody yelling, there's another device, run. And I remember I was, how old was I? I was 38 38 in a little better shape than I am now. (laughs) And I turned and took off running and after I ran about a block and I could see devastation in all directions, I thought, I cannot physically outrun this device. <laughs> so I turned around and we all went back to the, we all went back to the scene. Watching later, watching news reports, because we had reporters that showed up really quickly 
And I remember seeing that and seeing dudes run and you could tell who was just an employee in the downtown area and who was a cop, who was a firefighter. Because like you said, it was like everybody ran and at about a block, about half the crowd stops and turns around and starts heading right back. Yeah. So did they could give the all clear? And it was like, no, that was the cops yeah. and firemen. And um, you also, I think you get a little bit fatalistic. You, you, when you're in that such an overpowering event, you, you, mm-hmm. you resign yourself to it's either my time or it's not. I've, yeah. I'm well-trained. I'm going to do what I can do to help. And if, if it's my time to go, I'll, I'll go doing uh, what I think's right to do. I was talking to Jacob about some of the, the events that surrounded that. And, uh, this came up, he goes, well, how old was your dad at the time? And I went, Oh, he was three years younger than I am right now. And we just both kind of got quiet and he goes, Oh wow. He's the same age as I am right now. And I can't imagine doing that. How many, and one of the things that came up was how many times do you think you went in and out of that building? Well, initially, uh, just a couple, uh, so because immediately after, immediately after then uh, the way they had the system organized is you had your fire department search and rescue, uh, assisted by the FEMA teams. As soon as a victim would be located, they would call us and then we would come over, uh, load the victim, take them to the temporary morgue across the street at the church, uh, doing a uh, preliminary analysis or preliminary examination, just really trying to identify who the person may be before they were sent over to the medical examiner's office. Uh, in the 12 days, I was probably in and out of there uh, 50 to 100 times. I don't know. Oh, wow. Uh, quite a few. There's. I still I posted on Facebook the other day is, is uh, um, the anniversary is approaching a picture of me and my my academy mate uh, Dave Dykus in the basement of the building, getting out the, the or, or transporting out the last victim before implosion. Well, uh, that's actually going to be the uh, podcast picture for this episode, is you and him standing, I think, in the basement area. That's in the basement. Uh, you know, we had access. Yes. Uh, we had access, uh, to the basement as they, you know, they, there was a couple private entities and they had shored the building up. I don't know if that's the proper term, but they had, it made some type of repair to keep it from falling over, I guess. During the, most of the operation, we had chunks of concrete small and large falling and as a matter of fact you know there's speculation that at least a couple of the victims survived the bombing and that's what ultimately uh uh including a uh i believe a reserve oklahoma county sheriff and a nurse who were seen outside and inside the building and 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 ended up dying yeah i i I remember specifically the nurse because she she happened to get carried out. She was just a volunteer. Uh, and she got carried out in, uh, I can't remember what they call the position, but it was obviously obvious that she had a head injury that was ultimately fatal from mm-hmm. falling debris. And who Pugilistic was realistic response. I yes. believe, for your, 
Uh, Jacob said, why is unity so important as a community? Well, personally, that's a, you know, it's a, it's a broad statement. Unity, uh, I think denotes a like-mindedness and, you don't have to be a hundred percent in agreement on politics or religion or any aspect of life to be united. And, and what, you know, especially as I've gotten, uh, I've matured and gotten older, uh, you, there's some debate on that. Well, (laughs) trust me, uh, that, that unity, I think is what it takes to defeat hate. And ultimately, uh, hate is at the core, whether it's the international terrorism we see, uh, you know, it's that hate for somebody else's beliefs or ideology that result in these kind of actions. Uh, so unity, I believe, leads to communication and and being able to meet on common ground and that sort of thing that's something that's bothered me in the last few years with this this these periods of frequent civil unrest is you know i look at it and i go what is it going to take for communities or or different uh different entities to go is it going to take another 9 11 is it going to take another april 19th to go Hey man, the cops and the fire. I didn't see an Antifa member digging bodies out of the rubble. Absolutely. And that's what, that's what I was conflicted about. I've been a gun enthusiast my entire yeah. life. And the, um, the, the, the rhetoric, the, the beliefs of Tim McVeigh on many levels, I would have probably sat down and, and been able to converse with him. And, his idea on how to correct what he perceived as wrongs and my idea are drastically different. Yeah. I just don't think you can get your message across killing babies. No. Hindsight's always 2020. You know, I look at the, some of the incidents that he cited that, uh, he claimed drove his, you know, drove him to that response. And there are a lot of things in those incidents that I look at and I go, that was a horrible, horrible thing that happened. And I know some of the people that were there. I know some of the, on both of the incidents that he talks about, I personally know people that were at least involved in the tertiary, the, the, the after action things. And none of those people were bad people. There were none of, you know, none of these federal officers, federal agents, None of them were any different than any other cop or any other citizen that I work that I've worked with or encountered. Um, and he had such a, it, the perception was he had such a hatred for this government organization. And I go, man, some, some of my dear friends are agents. Some of them were at Waco. Some of them were involved in the perimeter of Ruby Ridge and, and, and there were horrible horrible mistakes and horrible things that happened in both those incidents. But I don't think you get your pound of flesh. You don't get your comeuppance from blowing up a building with innocent children in it. Absolutely. Or or innocent people, Americans, those same guys, uh, many of them are gun rights guys. Many, I've got several good ATF Mm -hmm. friends 
who are gun enthusiasts just like me. I know some that are not. I've got friends in the private sector who are not gun enthusiasts like I am. But, uh, you know, and the other thing is understanding of an incident, for the lack of a term, whether it be a police shooting, whether it be Ruby Ridge, whether it be Waco, whether it be any other incident, is what they read in the media. Yes. And the media has takes a snapshot of an incident and many times slanted by their corporate bias. And every news outlet out there has corporate bias, whether you believe it or not. Well, I'm going to, yeah, exactly. I'm going to plug your, uh, your aftermath of a shooting briefing. If you haven't been to it, uh, when you, you pitch it, I'm hoping maybe we can, we can get you to the guardian conference in September to come up and at least do the aftermath presentation. Uh, but there's a picture of Prince William in, and, uh, this one really struck me because I remember seeing that on the national media and it looks like he is flipping a crowd of people, the finger. Yeah. And, uh, you take the picture from the front end and that's from a side view and you take the, you take the picture from the front end and he's, he's holding up the number three for, you know, yeah, but in the soccer style. Yeah. And, and which is, you know, your, your thumb and, and index finger. And he's like, I, I don't know, it may have been a soccer game. He was going, ah, hey, we got three victories in the world cup or whatever yeah. it is. And I, yeah. And it was perspective. And I remember seeing the media reports about, you know, Prince William does, you know, makes a gesture and it was like, you gotta be kidding me. Yeah. Really? And it was very innocuous, but it, it is absolutely a microcosm of the grand scale of how the media, like you said, takes a snapshot and runs with it. And I've seen, I've seen some pretty wild theories and wild. I don't want to say the word conspiracy theory, but I just did. I've seen some wild stuff happen with that in, in the aftermath of all these events that I know from being in law enforcement are absolutely 100% false and people still take it by the spoonful. And people, people have to understand that the media there is not a 501c3. They're not a non <laughs> nonprofit doing social justice work. They're selling a product. Yeah. And what sells in the media is I- I- extreme events. Well, uh, well, before we spiral into, yeah, it's absolutely, you're absolutely right. Before we spiral into the, you know, whooping on the media too bad, because we are, uh, you know, this network, it's a media outlet of some right. sort, but we, and we do sell a product, you know, we push product, we, um, you know, we promote sponsors and all that. But, uh, one of the things Jacob wanted to know, this was Jacob specifically, uh, what else does America need to know and remember? And I'm going to give the first answer, uh, because I saw it, you know, in that time of unrest and I've seen it, uh, you know, having all these periods of civil unrest, the bulk of America is generally pretty good. Yes. And we focus because it's in our face every day, civil unrest, riots, this, that, and the other, the bulk of the popul the populace in the United States, I would say, and I, I don't know how it is in other places in the world, the places I've been, it's been pretty similar, but the bulk of them are pretty good. So what would you say to that? I agree. I, I believe that most people are good. Personally believe that very few people are 
totally bad and very few people are totally good. Everybody (laughs) has a little badness in them and everybody has uh, a little bit of goodness. We have all, anyone that's been in law enforcement for any length of time has experienced that very minute percentage of people who are bad to the core. Uh, And, you know, otherwise, regardless of your beliefs, I think people believe what they believe is the, the right thing. And, and what I w- would love to see in the, in the country is open communication, stop the knee-jerk reaction. You can't pass a law for every time something bad happens. It's you're not going to fix anything the minute after it occurs. You yeah. have to research it, and you have to know more than just the surface of the, uh, of the issue. Yeah, and I, I think – you know, and most of the podcast listeners, you know, that they, they tend to hinge on the uh, gun law stuff. But being in law enforcement, I see it on all fronts. It's mm-hmm. not just, you know, it's not just the whole gun control debate. Mm-hmm. It could be anything. Anybody with uh, anybody with a tragedy uh, wants to change the law. And I don't. Yeah. I used to really get down on people that had that that mentality. But I try to see it from their perspective, and they feel like they're doing something good, regardless of what may be the actual second and third order effect of you know some legislation that's aimed at, at curbing a certain behavior. So, do you have any, because we're over an hour now, and uh, I'm getting hungry, and you teased me with a steakhouse. Mm-hmm. So, uh, do you have any other final thoughts or anything you want to let, let's see how Jacob worded it. Anything you would want to let the world know about it in regards to that incident? Um, no, just in general. Uh, I mean, you go back to the golden rule and treat people the way you want to be treated. Have respect for your people that you disagree with. You know, live life and enjoy life. That's uh, oversimplistic. Not uh, really. Well, it shouldn't be. It it really <laughs> shouldn't be. It shouldn't. If you believe in equal rights, everyone should be treated equally and respected. I can respect you and disagree with you. So yeah, I can even not like you and respect yeah. you. <laughs> well, I've I, got several I don't I don't particularly <laughs> care for, but I respect. Well, maybe we'll do a podcast on that list at some yeah. point in time. No, I'm kidding. Uh, it'd have to be a long one. Well, thanks for coming in. I'm going to go ahead and mute your mic and then right. do the Thank you for out. having me. All right. Thanks to our guest. A reminder, check out today's sponsor, XS Sights. Get sights for your favorite lever gun, wheel gun, semi-auto, scope mounts, XSSights.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Again, this podcast will be released April 19th, the 26th anniversary Alfred P. Murrah building bombing. If you're unfamiliar with that, Google it. I appreciate uh, my guest coming in and speaking to that.
The Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor, and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.